What is God's purpose, his calling, his goal for people who want to follow him? Some people would say that uh, it's holiness. Others would say it is acknowledging the supremacy of God. Some people would say it's worship. Some people would say evangelism. Others, discipleship. Some people would say it is bringing a social, a social revolution to our culture and our world. In one sense or another, all of these are correct. They, they are, they're true, they're right, they're a part of it. And, and we, are, we are asking God to help us be a part of, of wanting to accomplish these things and transforming us to be these things. But I think sometimes we have a view of God's goal and purpose for us as Christians that moves toward these things in a way that I think is different from what God may intend. What often happens with us is that we tend to see the goal, the purpose of being a Christian only from the perspective of me. What God is doing in my life, what God is doing in my heart, how God wants me as a part, as a follower of Jesus. And while that is important, obviously, I I think God's deeper purpose, I think God's, God's larger design is that we be connected as the church. And Peter seems to be saying the same thing in this passage we read, where he talks about the people of God being built into a spiritual house. I think that's significant. When when Jesus says to his disciples... On this rock I will build my church and the, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. He doesn't say on you as a person I will build or my rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against you, though that may be true. That's not what he says. It's about the church. And there is power in the church. In this spiritual house that God designs for us, that God plans for us and calls us to be. This is a spiritual house, Peter says, that is going to be bigger than any of us can imagine. Peter is writing to people who are scattered, people who are persecuted, people who are in various places uh, in the world. And he writes to them into a, and people in a culture who are continually being told you are invaluable, your life means nothing, what you believe is ridiculous, unreasonable, ignorant. You have no value or worth to our society. And Peter's word to them is, that's a lie. Because the spiritual house that God is building means that you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession. This is the spiritual house that God is building. It is, it is more awesome than you can imagine. You do have value and worth In this house that I have designed and built. 
And it is the calling of God's people to be a part of the spiritual house. Now he says that this house is built of living stones. And that has something to do with us. We need to be living stones. We are called by the Spirit to be alive. And we are made alive through the crucified, risen Christ. But often, we leave it there. And I think sometimes our picture of what it means to be a living stone is just one stone lying on the ground. And, and, and I think we, we almost come to the place of saying, that's okay. If that's all I ever am, that's okay. And I think that's a very stunted, unbiblical view of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Peter says we are living stones that God wants to use to build the spiritual house. And the calling on our lives is not just to be a stone lying on the ground somewhere. And granted, it's better to be a living stone lying on the ground somewhere than to be a dead stone. But that's not our purpose. That's not our calling. That's not God's design for us. It's to be a part of this spiritual house that he is building. That is beyond our ability to comprehend and grasp. But often we struggle to really believe that that's God's intent for us. We settle to say, well, if I'm just good myself, that's all that matters. It's just really just me and Jesus. Everything else is icing on the cake. No. We have totally misunderstood what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's about being a living stone that's a part of this spiritual house. That's God's purpose for us. That's God's design for us. And in our Western culture, in our Western mindset, in this, in this culture in which, in society in which, what continually comes to us is that it's all about me, my rights, it's, it's whatever I want, we have brought that into the church. And we've convinced ourselves that as long as it's me and Jesus, then really everything else is superfluous. And we've missed it. We've missed what it means to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. I think this will mean for us that we, we think more about unity than we do our divisions. Now, we're, we're distinct. God, is, God in his amazing creative work created us to be different. We are distinctive. And we give thanks to God for that. We look different. We, we have different backgrounds and experiences. We come from different places. There are all kinds of ways in which we are different. Gender, age. We're different in things like economics and geography. We're different in levels of education. We, we are different in all kinds of ways. But instead of using those differences to bring us together, we often use those differences to split us apart. And our focus is not on how can we take our distinctives and build this beautiful mosaic that is the church. We 
we start saying, if they don't see things the way I do, then they are wrong and we can't get along and we have to go our separate ways. And we become just stones by ourselves. Years ago, when we lived in Wisconsin, as part of a ministerial group, that we would meet together every month and uh, we would talk about, uh, you know, some things going on in our churches and how we together as the churches in this town might be able to help the community. And, and, and we had a, a great time uh, together. But at some point we realized that we wanted something more than just getting together and kind of talking about business. So we decided that we wanted to begin worshiping together. There was a retreat center just outside of town and we wanted to meet in this retreat center. We would uh, take turns leading a brief devotional. We would pray together. We would share concerns from our lives, from our churches, and, and uh, worship together, sing a little bit. And, and we started getting much more excited about coming together. And as these plans were, were taking shape, one of the guys in the group said, if we're going to do that, then I can't meet with you anymore. And I said, Why? He said, because we, in our church, we believe that if we don't agree on every doctrinal perspective, then we can't worship together. And he said, and since I know that we have differences of opinion about, about doctrine in this group that's very diverse, I can meet with you for a business meeting, but I can't meet with you to worship. I got to tell you, I'm a, I might be naive, but I had never heard anybody say that kind of thing before. And we felt bad leaving him out, but we went to worship. It was too important for us. I think sometimes in the church we have this mindset that the things, the distinctives about us, even the God-given distinctives, they, they, they separate us instead of unifying us. And instead of realizing that if we come together, we create this beautiful house with all of, all of the different ways and different gifts and things that we bring to it, everyone has to look just like us. And since that's not going to happen, and they're not going to think like us, we're going to go off and just be our little stone by ourselves. And we're not really fulfilling God's call to be this spiritual house. I know one of the reasons we wrestle with that is because it means we're going to have to sacrifice. We can't always get our way. The decisions don't always go the way we want them to go. But that's what working together is about. And quite frankly, it may remind us that we aren't always right, as hard as that is to hear sometimes. And other people interacting with us and our lives intermingling together is often the means in which God uses to break off some of those rough edges in our lives and to smooth us out. God uses other people. As we read in the scriptures, iron sharpens iron. And we often need to be sharpened. And that means we're going to sacrifice in verse 5, he talks about the, us coming and, be, and offering spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to God. And it is a completely different thing to offer spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to us than spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to God. In the Old Testament, when they bring sacrifices, it always costs them something significant. It's the first fruits 
of the harvest, the best of the crop. It's always the best of the flock. It's a sacrifice. It's a significant sacrifice. And you and I are called to those same kinds of sacrifices. And, and we, we struggle with that because we know if we're really going to be involved with each other, if we're really going to connect with each other to be, build this spiritual house, then probably people are going to ask us to do something in the church. And we'd rather not. We might be asked to teach Sunday school or work in children's church or help with the youth group or be an usher or a greeter or go to the nursing home. And we just want to come to church, do our thing, and go home. We don't really want to sacrifice. And again, we become a stone off by ourselves. And we miss out on the joy of being a part of this house. And instead of seeing this as something we dread because, oh, I have to sacrifice, we see it as something we look forward to. We get to be a part of something so much bigger than us. We get to be a part of, of this wonderful house, the spiritual house that God is building that is awesome. And we don't realize how much us not being involved in this house hurts the kingdom. It's, it's like playing the Jenga game. You probably have seen this Jenga game. You may have played this game, and I know I'm going to knock this thing over if I do too much of it. You know, you pull out a piece and you put them on top and, and, and you keep pulling out pieces. And, and if you pull out a few pieces, it'll stand. But when you get very many, you compromise the integrity of the tower and it comes crashing down. And we think, well, just one more piece. But it's just one more piece. And how many people does it take for us to say... My involvement's not that significant. Me, my sacrifice is not that important. How long does it take until the spiritual house that God has designed has holes in it? And is threatened. What we're really doing is we're really modeling Christ. Because Peter says the, the cornerstone of this house, the architect of this building, is Christ. And if anybody looked at Christ while he was here on earth and they then looked at him on the cross, who in their right mind would believe that that was a worthy, worthwhile foundation on which to build a kingdom? No one. He's rejected. The only people that like hanging around Jesus are the people that no one else wants to hang around. He ends up on a cross. He's treated like a criminal and yet, Peter says, that very criminal, the one who's rejected, is the perfect cornerstone, the perfect foundation for the spiritual house that he is building. Because when he is the foundation who is right and true, every stone that is placed upon him is going to be in the right place, right and true, and the foundation is good, no matter what, no matter what, it's good. Because the one who was rejected, the one who went to the cross, the one who died, rose from the dead. 
And he conquered our greatest enemy. And this foundation has power. And it is perfect. And it will hold up this house that God is building as we offer ourselves as living stones. What ends up happening then is that we, we begin to look as a house that he builds, we begin to look like the architect of the house. People can look at that spiritual house and say, I know who built that. I mean, we, if, you, if you know anything about famous architects, they have a style. They, they have, they have a, something about the way they design things and the buildings they create that, that can tell people who know, oh, that's a Frank Lloyd Wright. Oh, that's a Christopher Wren. And artists do the same thing. People who, who study art can look at a painting and know which master painted it. And when people look at this house that God has built, they aren't looking at the individual stones in the house. They're just looking at the house. And it occurs to them, this looks like Jesus. Because it's his house. My grandfather was a, uh, he was a terrific builder. He, uh, he built a lot of houses. He was also a, uh, a college professor who taught music. And he was a pastor. And, um, you know, back in those days, college professors and pastors didn't make a lot of money. So he always was supplementing his income with things. And one of the things he would do is buy an old house and restore it and remodel it. And then he would sell it. My mom talked about how, you know, they, they would move into a... a kind of a dilapidated place, and he would spend a, a year or so fixing it up, and just when it got to the place where it was, they wanted to live in it, he would sell it to someone, and then they'd go find another house and do the same thing. And they moved around a lot, and, uh, but he could build about anything, and he did. He built a number of houses, remodeled a lot of houses. In fact, in his retirement years, he took a Volkswagen Beetle, and he cut it off right behind the back seat and he put a camper on the back of it. This was the oddest looking vehicle you've ever seen. Most of the family really did not want to drive around town riding in this with him. But it, was, but it worked and he did it. He just had a mind for that kind of thing and he could build stuff. Unfortunately, his building skills were not passed along to me. I do not have that gift. Um, I can putter around the house a little bit. Some of you uh, may have had the uh, privilege of helping me with some projects. And um, probably you've walked out of the house thinking, I am so glad I don't live in a structure that he constructed. This is bad news. Now, there is one thing that I'm kind of proud of and uh, that I made a number of years ago. It stood the test of time. And it's this this, uh, garbage can holder that I made. Hey, it's painted and everything. I'm going to tell you right now. I am proud of this. This is my, this is my building accomplishment. You got to remember, in eighth grade, in shop class, uh, I was completely out of my element. And, and I remember the time when the shop teacher handed all of us some wood and said, build something. I don't know what to build. I don't know the first thing to know what to build. 
And so I thought, well, the guy next to me seems to know what he's doing, so I'm just going to build what he builds. And he was building a little shelf. And so when he cut the wood, I cut the wood. And when he nailed, I nailed. And when he varnished, I varnished. And, and when it got done, it really didn't look too bad. And I remember taking it home and showing it to my parents. And, and they said, wow, this is, this is nice. And then my mother said, but I do have one question. Why are the ends in the shape of the letter R? I said, hey, the guy's name was Randy that was next door to me. That's not my field. It's not my thing. And you know what I've come to discover? That no matter how how hard we try, when we try to build the church, we're much more like me than my grandfather. We, we use, we, we mess up the tools of relationships. We succumb to the temptations that come at us. We, we mess up so often. We are so imperfect. We don't have a clue what we're doing most of the time. But the good news is Jesus does. Jesus knows exactly what to do. He is the master architect and the master builder. All he's asking of us is that we let him use us. That we hand him our living stone and let him make it a part of the spiritual house that he is building. I love what the the psalmist says that we read earlier. He said the the cornerstone, the, the one who's been rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. And then he says, that verse we quote so often, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Why are we rejoicing? Because the one who was rejected is the cornerstone. And he is building this spiritual house that is beyond our ability to comprehend. And he invites us to be a part of it. We can be living stones off on our own, accomplishing so much less than what God intends. Or we can offer ourselves spiritual sacrifice and watch God put us into this awesome house he is building that reflects his glory and allows us to be a part of something amazing. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege you've given us privilege you've given us to be a part of this this house you're building. Lord, help us to be willing stones that you take and you do more with than we could ever imagine. Pray this through Jesus, our Lord.
and Savior, the cornerstone. Amen. As we are singing the last hymn this morning, we're going to distribute to you stones. And just pass them through the rows and just take one. And this is in order to remind you of our calling to be a part of this house that God is building. He's calling us to be living stones. He's calling us to be living stones and giving us the privilege to be a part of his kingdom. And my prayer is that you will take your stone home and you will put it somewhere prominent. And every time you see it, you will pray, Lord, let me be a living stone in your house. Whatever you want that to be. So let's stand for the closing hymn. And as we sing, take your stone and may God speak into your heart.